from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. I'm really, really excited today to introduce uh, you to Jeff Cashman. Uh, Jeff and I have known each other. Jeff was actually my first project manager when I started in consulting with Accenture. So Jeff, welcome aboard. Thank you very much, Irv. Steve, thank, uh, thanks so much for having me. So I'm gonna try to do the best I can to introduce you, which is really hard, Jeff. So when I think of warehousing technology, uh, Jeff is probably one of the first people that come to mind. Jeff is a senior executive in technology and leadership. Jeff has had over 30 years, a 30 year career with great companies such as Accenture, Red Prairie, now uh, Blue Yonder, Manhattan Associates. Jeff is one of the early pundits in the WMS field. Um, most recently, Jeff was with Gray Orange as a senior leader. Gray Orange driving the intersect of three key technologies, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotics. Jeff received his, uh, his degree in MIS and economics from the University of Illinois. So he's a big tenor like the rest of us. Jeff lives in Atlanta and uh, with his lovely wife, Chris. Most recently, Jeff completed a 25K swim called the, the Border Buster between Canada and the U.S., Vermont to be specific. So Jeff, I hope I, that was a good enough introduction for you. I don't know if you would talk a little bit about swimming, but we're going to talk mostly about robotics today. That's awesome, Irv. Yeah, appreciate the uh, the intro and uh, uh, the the swim that we did was a, a great swim from Vermont to the U.S. and back. And you know, for one of our colleagues, Gary Godfrey over at Accenture specifically, did the swim uh, for ALS. So um, raised raised some good money, uh, awareness for this the, this uh, terrible disease, and it was all for a great cause. Uh, you know, ten and a half hours in the water, uh, but it was a it was a great event, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. So now that you're no longer waterlogged, we can ask some questions about robotics. Let's do it. <laughs> right. I think the, the last I read was uh, probably about $10 billion of robotics for warehousing. And it's supposed to grow like by a 15% CAGR over the next five years or so. And I think they're being conservative. What's the big push right now in robotics? You know, give us a little bit of background and kind of take us to, to the moment. Yeah, that's great. So, so let's uh, you know kind of frame it up a little bit, Irv, as we think about uh, robotics. Robotics, quite frankly, uh, within supply chains, manufacturing has been around for a while, right? We're all very familiar with uh, robotics and manufacturing and automotive, and and really kind of the introduction of uh, th this type of automation into the supply chain. Where we've seen over the last, let's call it over the past decade, uh, there's really been this this focus around uh, from a consumer perspective, and I'll speak to retail and and, and big brands. You know, there's been this real focus around uh, piece pick, e-com. People refer to this as the Amazon effect, and the Amazon effect has fundamentally transformed how you and I as consumers uh, are going to buy. And that means I'm going to buy more online. Uh, and that means I'm going to have more, if you will, more volumes of piece pick than there would be of a case pick that would be going to retail. Back in uh, 2010, 2011, there was a company called Kiva. And Kiva was acquired a robotics company. And, and the type of robotic at that point was what's called a goods to person solution. Fundamentally, if you will, on an inventory, uh, on, a, on a distribution center floor, think about inventory being stored in racks and then robots uh, basically going out and picking up those racks and then bringing that to a picker and then basically picking the inventory out. So goods to person. 
uh, really was introduced by Kiva in the um, in the late 2009-10 uh, timeframe. Amazon acquired Kiva in 2011, and it really became the cornerstone for what's now known as Amazon Robotics. And Amazon Robotics today is is somewhere along the lines of 400,000 to 500,000 robotic agents, devices that are deployed across their distribution network. So let's just put that a bit in context of what Amazon has done with robotics, specifically in retail and big brands, and around this Amazon effect and how they fundamentally have accelerated the adoption of this new technology to drive and, and create streamline and efficiencies within the supply chain. So you kind of fast forward, if you will, into 2017, 18, 19, you're starting to see more and more robotic now agents being, uh, robotic companies now being deployed based on use case, right? A lot of this is very engineered, very kind of swim lane oriented to, hey, let's Here's the, here's the business process flow. What are the levels of automation that we could apply around this particular process flow? And oh, by the way, how does robotics fit into that? We're all very aware of uh, material handling equipment and different types of autom automation that exist in the marketplace. Some have been very, very successful in what they've done over the number of years. But really some of the driving factors that are coming into this now is historically a lot of that material handling equipment is drilled to the floor. So once you make the design of the building, you put in that process flow, and I now have my automation in place, it's in place. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to undrill it and move it around versus some of the more flexibility. And you're going to hear that word a lot around flexibility of automation being deployed to drive the same, if not better results. So you start to see these new entrants in the robotic marketplace in 2015, 16, 17, 18, goods to person type robotics. You've got high volume piece pick robotics. You have case mover robotics. Many of these are coming out of China and or international marketplaces that are now starting to show up here in the States uh, and, and starting, to be, starting to be deployed. A lot of this at, you know, in, these, in this time frame, 2017, 18, 19 is, Let's do a proof of concept. You know, let's put it over in a corner. Let's see if this thing will work. You know, a bit of a shiny object syndrome, if you will. And, and so, you know, the, the chief supply chain officer or the head of engineering would say, yeah, we're trying robotics. And let me walk you over to the corner and show you how it works. Right. Well, the reality is uh, that's not how it works. Right. You're not seeing it in a production environment. And so what you saw in 2017, 2018 is now these solutions being put into production early days, still very early days, as these new solutions are being deployed into production environments, uh, and not quite at scale, but now proving out the value proposition, the return on investment that we're putting into this, that we're now going to be able to see the value coming out of it and the deployment and truly validate, if you will, kind of the, the flexibility and scalability that's been talked about from the robotics perspective. So now, now all of a sudden we hit COVID. So 2019, 2020, we now hit COVID. And retail, uh, if you remember, if you step back a bit, business at that point was maybe 80% retail, 20% e-com. There were some that were at 70, 30. But fundamentally, it's a, the fundamental driver still for retail is stores, stores, stores. And people are going to come and, and, and pick their own inventory at the store, if you will, right? And then COVID hits. And when COVID hits, what happened is, as you know, retail shut down. So there was no retail. And 
And many of the retailers at that point in time have talked about their omni-channel strategy. They had omni-channel distribution centers. In reality, uh -uh. they had basically still silos of retail inventory and silos of e-com inventory. And it was 80% and it was 20%. And when, and when the store shut down, inventory was still locked in that retail distribution network and they had to go bust open all those cases and started doing onesie, twosie picks because that is now what was happening. You're being generous, Jeff, when you say 80-20 because it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere even near that uh, pre-COVID. I think in aggregate pre-COVID, if you look at all retail, it was yeah. just right around 10% was e-commerce, like in aggregate. But when you start slicing it down into individual brands, and I don't want to talk about companies here, but many of the major retailers were way less than 10%. So you're right, it is pretty small as a percentage. I often find it fascinating, and I, I ask this question of two different audiences. If I ask people, I can tell by looking at our cameras right now, we're all not, we're all not you know, millennials. If I ask the millennials how much business is e-commerce, they'll say, oh, it's probably 50 or 60%. Well, that's not true. And if I ask somebody our age, they'll say, ah, oh, it's, you know, probably, you know, five or 10% also. But, but yeah, you're, you're right. Pre-COVID, it was uh, something for the future for most firms. Absolutely. You know, and I think people, because they wanted to, to you know, play to the millennials, the whole omni-channel discussion, people, we know, I mean, Irv and I worked with several of these different customers that actually laid out omni-channel facilities. They never used them as an omni-channel facility. They still had the a, literally a fence down the middle of it that had retail. And, and it was a warehouse in a warehouse. We'd actually call it two different locations. We'd have to ship between the two locations, the two logical locations, to, and the inventory be segregated. You may have it in the big warehouse, but you may not have it in the e-com warehouse, so it stocks out. You've got to give it time. There are plenty of companies that do that. Yeah. You just think about the inventory redundancy. All that being said, that was the whole premise of why you need to why you need to basically build out these omni-channel strategies and omni-channel fulfillment strategies. Uh, so as so as we go into COVID, retail shuts down. Uh, we go 100% e-com, and yeah, this is a a whipsaw effect. And it's from an operator perspective at this point, um, when I was at Gray Orange, we were, we were already in the you know, discussions with uh, customers around deployments and we had solutions already deployed in operations. And that is really a key. You've got to really deploy these in operations. You can't have it as a shiny object in the corner because it, it never demonstrates the value. During that period of time, March, April, May, June, it went dark. I mean, there were no calls, Nobody was responding to everything because everybody was burying it, you know, digging into their inventory and just trying to meet this massive, massive flip that just occurred. And, and when we got to June, July and August, we started to see this massive spike, this massive spike. And the types of people we were connecting with were chief supply chain officers, head of engineering for these large retailers and, uh, and brands. And, and, I, and the message that we started here is we will never let this happen again. We can't let this happen again. So now as we move through COVID, there's a, we on the robotic side are, st are starting to see demand, demand picking up. So that's all really good news. But now this underlying effect, and this is the systemic effect, the systemic problem that we have is not necessarily e-com that shift to the business, but we just don't have enough people. We just don't have enough people. This is a global statement, right? 
there was a very interesting uh, study done by one of these strategic consulting firms a year and a half ago, two years ago, about GDP and growth from 1970 to 2030. And fundamentally, to maintain that GDP growth, you're going to have to have X number of children born per family unit over these years. And, and since the 70s, every one of these markets has, let's just call them, you know, first world markets has been fundamentally declining on, on birth rates. And so uh, this isn't a governmental, you know, subsidy issue or problem. This is a pure numbers problem. You don't have the numbers of people to solve here. And as you start to layer on this effect of a high volume piece pick environment, you just need more touches and touches are coming one way or another. They're coming from a person or they're coming from a, uh, some other, some other uh, technology, but but the reality is you don't have enough people to solve the problem or basically satisfy the demand of consumers uh, like you and I. So, Jeff, you know, I, I go back to 30 years ago. You and I were doing a project in the contact lens business and you bought a pair of contact lenses that lasted you six months. And then all of a sudden they went to daily wear. So for the same amount of period of time, the modality will say, which is the volume picks up significantly. It used to be that you'd go to the grocery store and you were doing all the hard work of the labor work, last mile labor work, right? And and where the grocery store, in this case, we're, we're moving cases, pallets and cases. Now they have to move pieces and the amount of labor to deliver the same result, albeit the modality, increases significantly. So there's only so much labor you have to throw at it. That being said, do you think the big impetus right now is responsiveness or just labor? Like what's the big push right now in automation and why, you know, it was, I think to me originally it was responsiveness. Now I think it's basically a labor play. So what do you think is pushing right now? I think you're right on it, Irv. It's a labor play right now. And in, in, in a couple aspects of, of it, the old good econ 101 kicks in at this point, supply and demand. I just don't have the uh, supply to basically fulfill the demand from a people perspective. I was literally listening to the radio yesterday and here in Atlanta, a large grocery chain, let's just put it that way, is paying $30 an hour, full-time benefits and college tuition, $30 an hour. I'm going there. That sounds like a great plan. <laughs> right. Just go back to 2018, 2019, we were at 15 bucks an hour and maybe uh, you're getting some benefits. So this is fundamentally flipped. So not only do I not have enough people, now I've got a real expense problem and chief supply chain officers are like, how do I, how do you demonstrate any margin, you know, in the business, especially in grocery, when we're already razor thin on margins, how are we going to demonstrate any margin, you know, increase? So, so how are you going to solve the problems? So this is just an accelerant. We call it the COVID tailwinds, at least from the robotics perspective, because there is this massive acceleration of the adoption of this new technology. Uh, I want to go back to one other comment. I just briefly kind of went across uh, regarding material handling equipment, right? And, and Irv and Steve, you've been around this a while and, and the material handling equipment, there's plenty of great technologies in the marketplace today uh, that can solve a lot of these high volume piece picking environments for sure. I mean, absolutely. They happen to be very large, you know, infrastructure type projects and you're drilling into the floor, but it, it'll crank out high volumes for sure. 
The, the challenge that we've got right now is we're, we're a bit being uh, impacted by our own uh, domain and that the supply chain. You go look at the large manufacturers of these you know, very sophisticated equipment. They can't get the parts uh, fundamentally to build this equipment to meet the demand that they have. So that's kind of point number one. They've got a problem with their own supply chain. Secondly is the likes of Amazon, Walmart, Target, Coupon. It's a global statement. Large players have come to the marketplace and really now taken up a lot of that demand or that supply of those vendors. So even if you wanted to get in line, uh, get in line for one of those very sophisticated high volume piece pick equipment, it's a two year wait. And that's a good two year wait before you're, you're actually going to be able to deploy that technology. So now you've, you've got the service requirement, Irv, because we have to service our customers better. We have a massive labor problem. We don't have enough of it. It costs way too much if I do get it. And now if I want to go leverage kind of technology I'm familiar with as a chief supply chain officer, I could go to the market and buy you know, from the manufacturer, proven manufacturer, they had hit those volumes. I can't get that equipment for two, two plus years to put that in my uh, environment. Is that too long? Can I wait that long? So there's a, a real big challenge that's now impacting these retailers and big brands trying to service you and I consumers. And, and, and we just touched that. We kind of seem to be in this conversation going back and forth between the term automation and robotics. Do you see, first of all, a distinction between those two terms in the supply chain, number one? And more importantly, are you starting to see those merge or are the lines getting blurred between what is automation and what is robotics as newer technologies are being developed? Can you can you talk about how you see automation versus robotics and what the you know what the current state is and maybe what the future state might might look like for those two different perspectives? Yeah, you know, at, at least from you know my my lens and, and where where I look at it from, you know, robotics is just the next step. I mean, this is the next evolution of automation. Right. You know, ultimately, you know, the view is I want to run a dark warehouse and, and that that does not forsake any of the historical automation. In fact, a lot of the current, you know, current automation and some of the evolutions of technology is going to be very, very beneficial. So it's not one or the other. I believe it's quite frankly, kind of the next step of or kind of the, the ability to bring on and continue to innovate you know, the automation uh, environment. That, that's kind of how I look at it. Do you see robotics as the merger between automation and artificial intelligence or the merger between automation and some other underlying technologies that that gives it that flexibility aspect that you're talking about? Yeah, that's really where we're getting to, right? Because at the end of the day, there are actually a lot more and, and I will tell you, I, I believe uh, there's going to be a lot more new entrants into the marketplace with robotics and automation over the next three to five years. I, I, we're in very, very early innings here on what does uh, robotics look like and, and do we have major players in the marketplace, dominant players in the marketplace? The answer is no. It's very fragmented. It continued to be very, very fragmented. It's being driven by use case. So every use case has a bit of a nuance. And therefore, you know, are we going to start to see some levels of consistency from a process perspective and therefore automation robotics being deployed? Uh, we're not there yet. I, I, think there, I think we're a ways away uh, at the robotic level and use case level. To your question, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a big believer of this and it's kind of my, my past, there is this orchestration layer 
this orchestration layer that sits above the automation, the, the robotics, the humans within the four walls of a fulfillment node. And I believe the big distribution centers of days gone by will still be there, but this whole concept of micro-fulfillment, fulfill from store, it's a real deal uh, because there's a lot of available real estate. These, these types of automations are becoming more easy uh, to deploy in a smaller footprint and therefore, um, I think we're, we're at the early innings and it's all going to be around kind of the augment or the innovation that continues within this space of automation, robotics, uh, as they continue to grow. And I believe, you know, this next, as I mentioned, kind of two, three, four, five years, as we see new entrants come in, there will be players that will emerge. And, and you're already starting to see kind of glimpses of these players. There's a company, a group out of... Uh, out of Maine called Symbotic. Symbotic is, uh, just went public. It's led by Rick Cohen of CNS Wholesale. They've got a lot of moxie. They've got some great, uh, great technology. They've got some great money behind them. You've got other groups uh, in the, it, that are starting to emerge as well. SoftBank's involved and, and, and KKR is now involved. So you're starting to see some of these large dollars starting to get behind players Still very early innings, but I think you'll start to see these players start to emerge in these two, three, four years, and therefore then start to consolidate the market by robotic types, automation types, therefore bringing solutions to the marketplace. But it's all going to be driven by, uh, this is a bit of the holy grail of the WMS guy in me, that says there's, a, there's an orchestration layer at the warehouse execution level that fundamentally orchestrates how we're going to be doing work within the fulfillment. There's a, a couple, I'll, I'm, going to, I'm going to throw in a couple, I'll call them larger variables that play into this kind of transition over to, you know, market level fulfillment and the like. One of them is inflation itself, you know, interest rates. And it's, you know, right now you can place inventory about everywhere and it, you know, it's relatively free, but that's changing very quickly. How does that work? And I'm asking questions of both of you. How, how does that work as it relates to this movement to e-commerce, single unit fulfillment, closer to the market, higher responsive rates? You know, it goes back to that whole math equation when we first started in the supply chain that took cost of inventory into place. It's coming back. So where, where do you see it? Where do you see its effect on, on this whole movement to single unit fulfillment and, and local market response? Let me, uh, let me start on my end, Jeff. You can jump in here. I will state clearly that I am not an economist, right? I haven't studied economics since graduate school, but I'm of the opinion and I'm looking for the paper to come out any day now for somebody to write about this, that part of what we're seeing in inflation is this shift to e-commerce. Because we're, we're old supply chain guys, right? We've been doing this stuff for decades and we know that the cost of single unit fulfillment is way more expensive than it is to store retail where the last mile is handled by the customer. You got all the extra labor in fulfillment. You got all the extra transportation costs. The last mile used to be fulfilled by the customer, right? He or she went to the store, picked up their goods and took them home. Now we're doing that for them. I was talking to a friend the other day who started shopping on Instacart for their groceries and they were talking about how great it is. And I'm only paying 10 bucks for that. And I'm only paying five bucks for this. And you were just talking about some of the retailers paying 30 bucks an hour. 
right, for labor. I, I again, not an economist, didn't even stay at the Holiday Inn Express last night, but I am convinced that the shift to single unit fulfillment has accelerated inflation. And so I wonder, Irv, to, to answer your question, is the trend, according to all my supply chain research buddies, is that we're not going to go backwards, right? Jeff mentioned that we were somewhere between 10 and 20% pre-pandemic. We've gone forward to that. Now, when, when the pandemic kind of has sort of gone to the back burner, we're now becoming more of an endemic, people are starting to go back to the store. So it didn't stay at the 30, 40, 50% level, but it's sticky. And, and I think we're going to see percentages of e-commerce in the probably not unconvincingly in some markets in the 30, 40% range. That's a lot of extra cost. So that's, that's kind of my take on that question, Irv, is that it, e-commerce is contributing to inflation and probably here to stay, meaning that, that e-commerce perspective, it's not going to go back to the way it was pre-pandemic. Steve, do we see the customers starting bearing more of the costs of fulfillment and what they're caught, what they're paying for today, because right now it's basically they're not covering the cost. Well, Amazon raised their price of Prime in some cases double digits. Other companies are starting to look at their fulfillment costs. And and look, this is basic, you know, business strategy, right? When you're in a growing market, you tend to take a lower margin because you're growing. When things start to become static, eh, those chief supply chain officers, chief financial officers start looking more carefully at the P and L and going, now wait a minute, we're not growing at double digits anymore. We're growing at single digits. If we want to increase our bottom line, we want to increase our, our share, we need to start looking at costs more carefully. And uh, I think it's a matter of time before companies are going to start saying, yes, Mr. and Ms. Consumer, we'll provide all these great and wonderful services to you. Here's your bill. And, you know, I'm glad we got Jeff here today because Jeff's talking about how maybe robotics is going to put a damper on some of those rising costs because... If labor went from 15 to 30 bucks an hour and there's no sight line where labor is going to become more plentiful, right? There isn't one. So you're going to have to replace labor with capital at some point. Otherwise, your costs are going to get way out of control. Right. Uh, a couple of points from a, a technologist uh, point of view here. I do believe I do believe that this whole idea of the analytics, predictive analytics, we're, we're going to start to see some of these being deployed on inventory, Irv, and therefore we're going to get tighter on demand with supply. And, you know, we're not going to have to go through earnings. The earnings calls won't be as rough as the last Target earnings call, a Walmart earnings call, where they had way too much inventory because of just the, the bullwhip effect that they've been going through. But, but I do believe some of these analytic solutions uh, at, the, at the inventory, inventory planning, right, assortment planning is going to get better. And that's a decade away statement, right? That's not tomorrow. That's, you know, as we battle through this economic, um, you know, storm that we have in front of us, it's not going to solve anything uh, here in the next two, three, four, five years. But, but I do believe that's going to get better. Now, now, Steve, going back to the comment regarding the whole robotics and damping down the costs. Look, at the end of the day, if you start to look at these robotics that are being deployed, majority of these systems that are being deployed are systems that are called person to goods, which is basically a cobot. There's a robotic company out there called Locus and, and Six Rivers, uh, Fetch has one. Uh, and, and they're basically a, a picking buddy, you know, that, that that basically allows you to get somewhere between 19 and 25, 30% better productivity. That's good. I mean, that's good. And by the way, we're standing this up in a matter of six weeks. 
eight weeks. This isn't years in the making. And the models in this instance that they're deploying is not a capital model. In fact, it's a service model. It's basically pay as you go. So, so now you're starting to get these, in this instance, for these person to good solutions. And now you're starting to see other robotic groups starting to adopt that service model, that you know subscription model, if you will, on, hey, look, I'll try it for a year, two years, three years. If I get the payback rate, if I don't take it back, by the way, Mr. Vendor, you're responsible for everything, software, hardware, maintenance, and uh, and that we're going to see somewhere between these 19% to, thir- uh, to 30% with these cobots. And when you get into these more sophisticated systems like the goods to person, you're up there at the 40 to 60% labor productivity, right? So, so massive gains now, not necessarily with capital outtake that we can actually go in a subscription model and become much more predictive from a operating, you know, cash model, if you will, for those cheap, uh, chief operating. Models. I think about that from two different perspectives, Jeff. The one of them is, is kind of what I always think that historic rule of thumb, which is 60% of your warehousing costs is your pick. Mm-hmm. 60% of your pick, your picking costs is your walk. So if we can amortize the walk or reduce the amount of walk, that, that helps us out a lot. The second thing you mentioned, which was the SaaS model, which is basically says that we're gonna we're gonna charge you per pick, helps us with two different two different things. Number one is I'll call it the peak to average ratio, right? The holiday shows up and all of a sudden a bunch of robots come to your come to your door, back off the truck, tuned and ready to go, right? That's one thing. The second of all, and actually I'm gonna start this with a more of a question, I won't have an answer, is I believe this helps out in the third party logistics model too, because it used to be that when you looked at third-party logistics, they tried to amortize the cost of expenditure of, of, of capital equipment over the length of the contract. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you start seeing that the need to do single unit fulfillment, bigger response, net expectation in third-party companies that don't like to make capital investments too far ahead of the curve. So I'm saying the SaaS model with, in fact, helps 3PLs also. I don't know if you want to make any comment. I tell you, I've worked real closely with 3PLs over the last uh, three years. And really the understanding, the transformation, uh, maybe it's a transition. I don't know if it's transformation, but it's a transition clearly from that lack of investment deal orientation the 3PLs have always been in. I'm going to do this deal. And with that deal, I'm going to throw X amount of costs around that deal. And there's my margin, right? And if I've got to capitalize some stuff, which I don't like to do, I'll amortize it across amortize it across the deal, right? We're starting to see some of these major players make some investments, forward investments into this type of technology. And, and it's paying off. It's paying off in their in their win ratio for sure. And it's paying off in margins. Now, to be fair, they've been at the lead, you know, they've been at the uh, the, the sharp end of the spear here for about the last two years, three years, uh, as this technology is emerging and maturing, all right? I'd love to say, to your point, Irv, these robots roll off the back of the bus and they're tuned and boy, away they go. Not always. So so there's this level of maturity that's now coming into the, into the product and therefore levels of more confidence and predictability with these 3PLs and customers that say, I feel better about that solution coming in and providing that value, that percentage of savings from a labor perspective, uh, that will will happen. But uh, it's a transition for 3PLs. There's still many that are not comfortable talking about 
non-deal oriented investments. But you know what, Jeff, you made a couple of comments. And, and by the way, I love doing these podcasts because Irv and I always learn a bunch of stuff from our guests. You, know, you were talking about the servitization model and we're actually our, our upcoming uh, leaders forum is on circular economy. And when I hear you talking about these companies going out with this service, that makes me feel good because that that's going to accelerate the adoption. Now you don't have big players like the 3PLs or like the major retailers saying, I got to make a decision on tens, hundreds, maybe billions of dollars in capital investment like they're at the craps table, you know? <laughs> And that risk is being put back on the technology adopters. And I also think, and I think history has shown this, you know, you could look at GE Gen Engine, you could look at Xerox or Hitachi with copiers, anything. What companies that have adopted the servitization model, the technology has advanced much faster because now it's, now they're not trying to sell a product. They're trying to sell a solution. And in order to do that, there are advantages that has to be comprehensive. And I, I'm glad to hear that they're doing that. I think, this is my guess is that if that's the way these companies like Fetch and Lotus, Locus and others are going to market, that may actually accelerate the adoption of the technology. Absolutely. And, and we saw that, right? And, and in retail, we're all very familiar with the CapEx budgeting process and budgeting cycle that we have to get around. Because when February 1st rolls around, you better have been in line and your project have better been approved. Otherwise, you're going to wait another year. And or, and or you may get fortunate and get caught in December and get the capital flush opportunity where, hey, I didn't build those three stores so I could go buy this particular, we could do your project now. So it, it all tends to be within a matter of three or four months where I've got a project is yes or no. So, so we, what we found when we launched this subscription model is that, in fact, it broke the cycle. I could get into, look, let's just work it out of the operations budget. We don't have to go get in line for CapEx huge benefit. And quite frankly, we can crawl, walk, run into the adoption of this technology. Really, really helpful for a lot of these large retailers that do not want to get burned with technology. The second piece of that, though, is now the burden, the burden falls to the vendor. And therefore, they better have a good size capital uh, balance sheet to be able to fund and support these types of customers. So that's a that's a balance. So so as you kind of go back to my earlier comments of the industries, it's new. It's very early in in game, right? We're, we've got a lot of companies that are in. We've got some investors that are starting to come in with some nice capital, but there's a lot of players in the marketplace that don't have the capital bandwidth to basically make these types of bets. And or if they do, it's going to be very singular, right? It can't be industry-wide. But, but at the end of the day, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for the industry. It's a good thing for the adoption of the technology. And Steve, to your point, the acceleration of innovation is absolutely core because that just drives to the vendor to reduce overall costs. Because I'm going, to, I'm going to produce a better solution and I'm going to be able to pull down better margin. So, so it all works really well. I think these early days are we're going to see, it's going to be a little choppy water with vendors that make it, vendors that don't make it based on these types of bets. A two-year waiting list though is going to look very attractive to investors. If I'm an investor and I, and I know I got cash, cash flow and customers coming for at least two years, that's going to look very attractive. Right. Right. And the payback on these things is, you know, especially if you go crawl, walk, run, you know, the payback is very 
very favorable given now these solutions have been proven in the marketplace at you know beginning at beginning to scale and demonstrate the real value again early days but very promising signs so let me kind of propose a world here and tell me how close i am to this real world it used to be back in the day where it actually wasn't long ago before I had to go back to a retail or warehouse and we had to inventory all the capital equipment and parts because we need to cannibalize them. We used to make capital investments in warehouses that used to exist for 20 plus years and the conveyors would be, you know, wouldn't be fit to purpose because the business changed or what have you. Meanwhile, on the retail side, they're changing out the displays every six months and re-merchandising the store. Now with the shift of e-commerce, and I always say this because this is the reason why I moved back into consulting back in the years, because I love to be closer to revenue. It's always good to be closer to revenue. When you're closer to cost, it's a little bit harder to get things done. Do you see supply chain, specifically fulfillment, moving closer to revenue to the point where we're starting to get money better than we are in, in the form of retail stores, a la retail stores? What are your comments of this world that I kind of laid out there? exciting world. And and beyond the exciting, it's already being demonstrated in the market. I'm not sure how many of you use Amazon or or you're going out onto other now of your favorite brands uh, sites. But when you click an order, they'll tell you with a, with a pizza clock, right? Where we are with, yes, we can do it. That basically a soft allocation is being done on inventory. Yes, we can do it. Yes, we can do it. Yes, we can do it. Now, Sad, sad part about the story is that some of that is just does, is not connected to the back end. It's just trying to create you to make a transaction. But the folks that have actually connected it to the back end, it works. It works. Where they're starting to lay out the soft allocation of an inventory of a SKU in a location for Jeff Cashman. So that is starting to work. And, and it drives all the way down to last mile. I mean, when am I going to receive it? Not when am I going to pick it? When am I going to receive it? And you're starting to see the SLAs and the success factors around the SLAs with folks that are starting to do this get better. They're getting better. Amazon's very good at it. Still not great, but very good at it. You're starting to see other retailers getting very good at it. And so as we get to that level, that gives me as a consumer much more confidence to click buy versus abandoned cart. And, And that's what they're trying to avoid. So you're right on. It's all about the revenue game. And I've got to lock, I've got to lock that consumer in at the point of entry and then hold that person to the loyalty of the brand because I did what I said I was going to do. And that was I delivered when I said I was going to deliver. Yeah, think about all the factors. I mean, and again, I I, I hate always saying it that we're we're not young guys anymore, but think of all the factors that used to go into the purchase decision, right, decades ago. Shopping meant finding the product where it was available and finding the cheapest price, right? Now availability is published, it's it's visible to us on the internet, and we can compare prices. So prices are transparent. So now the game comes down to, oh, you've got it. Oh, I like your price. When am I going to get it? That's right. Right. When am I going to get it? So the nature of the game for now, we're, we are talking about, I, I, I will maybe emphasize this and maybe you have an opinion on this, Jeff, is we are talking about business to consumer, but we all know because we're supply chain professionals that most transactions are business to business. So let's segue a little bit here on the tail end and talk, just talk a little bit about that. Like, how do you see robotics? 
playing into the business to business transaction space. I think we all agree on the consumer space. It's a given and it's it's moving and it's happening. And Irv's picture of the future is absolutely spot on. What's the business to business robotic space look like? Yeah, I think it's it's as promising. It's a little slower on the adoption side. So so it's as promising and larger to your point. I think when you dive into the wholesale business market and or manufacturing sector down to the wholesaler, this is going to require people to move stuff, right? And and we're getting down to buying things in smaller quantities. We're not buying bulk, we're buying smaller pieces and parts. And that's hitting the wholesalers, that's hitting the manufacturers to the wholesalers. The entire value chain is being impacted. And, and, and going back to the premise is every pick just costs a lot of money. Uh, and therefore we're gonna have to figure out a different way to do it and move that product. So I think there's a massive opportunity. I think it's slower because it's not as, if you will, kind of the value prop isn't as, I don't wanna say meaningful, but is as, as significant because the consumer is so vocal and so visible right now. I think that's where uh, the attention is gonna be for the next, for the foreseeable future, this next three to five years. But the, when you move into B2B and the expansion on B2B within these large enterprises, I mean, one large enterprise today, Let's just talk about this in scale. If you look at any of these robotics companies today, one large enterprise says, I want to do all my network with you. Oof, away goes that vendor, <laughs> right? Because they don't have the scale, the bandwidth, the ability to deliver across a GM network. H how does that work? Right. So I think you're going to start to see again, when we get out of these early innings, we start to see some consolidation. You start to see the balance sheets in place to really support these businesses in a service or if you will, a subscription type model, that's going to create this level of adoption, yep, on B2C, but also on this B2B, where we're gonna to start to see these players uh, come back, come into the market and therefore now accelerate the adoption of these types of technologies. Very good, thank you, Jeff. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us today. It was really just an honor to have you. And uh, you know, just for those that are, that are it, since this is on audio, Jeff blessed us with wearing his Penn State cap today. So we're really just even that much more pleased. So Jeff, again, great, great to have you here with us today on the podcast. Irv and Steve, thanks so much for having me. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Looking forward to the next one. We are. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.